this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So typically on this show, I interview people who have recently sold their business, which is great. You know, a recent sale means that the details are right at at, uh, someone's fingertips. It's very fresh. And the problem with those deals, however, is that sometimes the guest can't be quite as candid as I'd like them to be because they're in the middle of an earnout, for example, or, you know, it's still in the public eye and they just can't talk too much about what happened after the sale, which is why my next guest is such a rare treat. Ann Bennett sold her company all the way back in 2000. And before you say, oh, that has no relevance for today, remember that This is a really unique opportunity to look back at what happened to a company owner over the years after she sold her company. She sold AIS, which she built up to 30 employees uh, for around $5 million. And what I love most about this interview is actually what happened after she accepted the offer. She went through a process of selling her employees, and I'll let you have her describe that, what advice she would have for you if you're negotiating your deal, in particular details around how your life is going to be after your sale. She reveals some really interesting insights about life after you sell your company. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Ann Bennett. Ann Bennett, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate this, John. Yeah, no, no problem at all. So tell me a little bit about AIS. What did you guys do? Um, AIS was a very niche uh, PC-based software program that processed uh, K-1s for investors. So what is, what is a K-1? Remember, I'm from Canada. We're, we're all wet here. I, I have no idea what a K-1 is. Uh, a K-1 is given uh, when you have a partnership. The K-1 is given um, to the investors that provides their tax information. And uh, under the tax law, can be real estate, can be energy. um, So that sounds like an accounting firm to me. uh, Yes, it was done by accounting firms exclusively, almost exclusively. So that's what you guys did at AIS? You were an accounting firm? No. the accounting firms had mainframes, and they were uh, difficult to process K-1s because your investor changes. They get married. They change brokers. They buy and they sell. They do all sorts of things like that. So we were uh, had the opportunity to process it, uh, to develop the software on a PC-based system. 
which is very flexible. And so and we did. And did you own the software, Anne? Did you, did yeah, you own that software? The, so you had a unique software that would enable you to do this K-1 reporting. And it was a differentiator relative to the big four accounting firms because they were using this legacy mainframe computers. Yes, that and, and two other items. Uh, we, because we were not accounting firm, we could be a transfer agent and we could do investor relations, which allowed... Okay. I don't know what it, uh, what's, an, what's a transfer agent. Uh, when you transfer a share from one person to another, it goes to a transfer agent. And we could do that for non-trading uh, partnerships, which were all the, the public uh, and the private partnerships in real estate. You have to have a formal transfer uh, from wouldn't one person lawyer, to another. Wouldn't a lawyer do the transfer agent thing? No, uh, lawyers don't do that. Uh, transfer agents do. Register transfer agents. How did you get into these businesses? Because this seems so different. I mean, you're like the name of the company, AIS, Applied Information Solutions, sounds to me like a technology company, yet you sound almost more like an accounting firm and a law firm. Like these seem like, did, did, did these services to you, like were they connected? Did they feel like they were, they were nested together naturally or were they very different businesses? They were connected together because of my CPA background. Which was so you're Deloitte a trained on the audit accountant. and I'm a trained accountant. And um, so they, if you just do K1 processing, you have a peak and valley of income come in. Sure. Because that's yep. from, you know, November to, so we had to figure out how to level out the income. Well, and the next offshoot was we have all the information of the investors. Why don't we do investor relations for the partnerships? That allows us to spread revenue throughout the entire year. And oh, by the way, they will transfer because of death or something, transfer their units. We could do that, and that would happen all during the year. So that gave us a revenue stream throughout the year. Got it. So the K-1 was lumpy, and the transfer mm -hmm. agent stuff was, and investor relations was a bit more um, yeah. steady throughout the year. Got it. Okay. So yep. I see how they're, they're coming together. And investor relations, to be clear, I'm a, like I'm an investment partnership. I've got some investments I've got to communicate to my investors. How's the investment doing? Do we need more money? What are the, you know, what are the problems? Exactly. What are the opportunities? Got it. Got it. And so that sounds to me like investor service sounds to me like a kind of classic service business. What was the business model in each of these three? Like, how did you charge? A uh, number of a uh, uh, number of investors, um, a number of activity within the investors, because we had those statistics, so we knew approximately. And also, you know, they do the annual, they do the quarterly report mailings, so we could do that for them because we knew who all the investors were. Um, no, no, I get, I get that. But how did you charge for your services? Like, did you charge by the hour or by the project or a commission? No, by the like, project. No, by the project. I see. Yeah. Okay. The size of the deal, the size of the partnership and the number of investors within the partnership. Got it. Okay. Activity so you're based. working. Okay. That's helpful. But a, but a classic service firm, it sounds like you had some proprietary technology in this K1 processing software you built. Yes. Um, tremendous flexibility. Um, I could reprint K1s from three years prior. I could uh, quickly change your name, change your address. Um, 
I mean, these I, days that sounds like pretty basic, you know, like basic technology. But I guess we're going we're going back to the year two thousand, right? Where yeah. the big the big four are still on mainframes. Yes. Got it. So your unique, we you know, we call it monopoly control, but that unique sort of uh, piece of the business was this 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 software that you developed to process these K ones through a PC as opposed to a mainframe. Right. And there's one more key element. We used a mm. software program that was developed by the Army in the 60s um, called Revelation. And it is was extremely flexible. And the Army developed it and nobody picked it up. And we found it. And that's what we used, which was invaluable. So the foundation of what you do is so important. So Revelation, it, it, so is that a different software than the software you'd built to process the K-1s? No, it's the same. That's what we used. Wow. So you were essentially using software that was available in the public domain? Like, how did you get it from the Army? Did they make it available? It was public for domain. Public domain. So you're using a software someone else developed that you didn't own. Uh, no, no, no. The code, the, it's, it's the language, not the software. The language oh, we use to develop the That's software. Helpful. Yeah. That's helpful. I, I was misunderstanding. I thought it was the software itself. Okay. The underlying no. kind of language of the software was this this army-based revelation. Got it. Okay. I think I'm getting the picture. Uh, you can tell I'm a complete ignoramus when it comes to this industry. So it's helpful for me to educate me. Thank you for that. I think I get it. So how big did you get this firm before you decided to sell it? Like when I say big, I'm thinking you know, like number of employees or, you know, so give me a sense of the size of the company before you went to sell it. Um, the majority of the year, we were anywhere from 30 to 45 to 50, um, consisting of our tech staff, our customer service, our sales, and then our, our tax, uh, tax technical, because this is very tax technical. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, during the K-1 season, which started around March 15th and went through August, we went up to 100. Got it. So you've got some temporary center. folks that come in for the, yeah, that makes, makes sense. But the core team was sort of 30 to 50, depending yeah. on the time. What was the trigger that made you want to sell? This sounds like a very unique business. I'm assuming you could have kept it for decades. What, what thought, what made you think maybe now's the time to sell it? Um, outside circumstances. One is we pushed out about 3 million K-1s a year. That's significant uh, in a period of four months. Uh, the second thing is, is there were from uh, middle 90s uh, to 1998, there were three people in the business, Coopers and Librand, Pricewaterhouse, and AIS. And 1998, Coopers and Pricewaterhouse merged. And they called me and they said, Ann, we've just merged and we're going to call you in a year because we want to talk about buying you. Now, keep in mind that I have been a thorn in their side for years and they had done a Pricewaterhouse, especially had done was a formidable competitor, as we say. And I knew when that merger happened, um, there was going to be a significant effect on our business. Because they, if they had the audit, they would give away the K-1 processing to get the audit. 
So in a lot of ways, this was a defensive play. You thought you could see the writing on the wall knowing mm-hmm. that this little niche you'd created for yourself was, was in jeopardy. Tough. Gonna, it was in jeopardy. It was going to be tough. So I spent the year that they were figuring it out before they called me again, selling as many as I could. In fact, I just closed one. They called me on April the 16th, day after tax season, one year exactly. And, they and said, what did we, they say? They said, oh, we'd like to talk. And I said, well, it'll have to be highly confidential. Um, I'll meet you at the airport. And we rented a room at the airport. Why and did you choose the airport? Because um, the restaurants, growing up in Denver in the consulting area, we always watched who we, where we went to lunch, who we talked to, because you're very well known in Denver. And somebody would see that and recognize it immediately. So the airport was, and it was neutral ground, too. They certainly sounds couldn't kinda, come to the office. Sounds very Jason Bornish. I love it. Yeah, so you're meeting it, it at the airport. It was a little bit. Okay. You bring your three passports with you. Anyways, you're meeting at the airport. What, so what happened that next? Um, so they, we sat down and talked. We talked about conceptually how, uh, how it might work. And um, then they got back to me again uh, about a month and said they were interested. We decided on it. On, uh, we agreed on the terms August the 1st, and we closed it August the 30th. Wow. We closed so in one month. Due diligence you and s- everything. That's incredible. Before we get into that, I want to I want to know what you talked about conceptually. So you mentioned the airport meeting. You talked conceptually, and I think again for our listeners who've never gone through a sale, it 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 may be a little vague to, to when you say conceptually. So kind of what was discussed in that conceptual meeting? Like what sorts of things would you have covered in that airport meeting? Um, the employees, longevity, what what their plan was for my thirty employees. Um, location, um, because I knew we we're a tech company, even though I was, you know, multi, um, we were basically a tech company and they were a public accounting firm and their tech environment is not the same as my tech environment, uh, AIS's tech environment. And I knew it would be significant for them while I knew their price waterhouse would be very valuable on their resume the culture shock would be significant. So I discussed with them about not moving the office for a year, um, what their hiring policies would be with my employees and what they plan to do with the customers as far as keeping them on our flexible AIS system as opposed to converting them to their mainframe. Got it. So you're really dealing with the uh, the integration questions, employees, mm-hmm. technology, location. What about price? Did you guys start talking about price at that airport meeting? No, we didn't. Interesting. No. Interesting. Price so how did, did the how, how did how did the price come up? When would, did you first learn what they were willing to pay for AIS? Uh, about six weeks later, um, which would have been about the sort of the end of July, I think we went back and forth a little bit. Um, and meanwhile, it's our selling season. So we were both out there selling and I was closing deals. So I you know, wasn't waiting at all for them to come back. I believe they came back with a price offer towards the end of July. And uh, I made a, an error. I did not feel 
because they had been such a formidable competitor that I should negotiate this myself. So I, I called and this, don't do it, called my brother-in-law for a recommendation. No, don't do that. Bring in the M&A and interview each one, <laughs> just like you would a real estate agent. Do not call your brother-in-law for a recommendation. Um, because he was out in Minnesota, he was not tuned to this type of a deal. Just to be clear and just to make sure everybody kind of... So you're saying you called your brother-in-law for a recommendation on an M&A professional to represent you in the transaction. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Got yes. it. And so your brother-in-law is out of the market, doesn't know Denver, doesn't know your industry and recommends somebody. Right. That was a, that was a, that was a mistake I made. But... Um, the so they called the M and I guy and he gave the price and I said I'll think about it and I went up to the mountains skiing and not skiing I went up to the mountains and I there's a as you come out of the mountains there's something called Floyd Hill and it gives you a panoramic view of Denver and it's it's a it's significant and I said to myself hmm, million more. A million more. Picked up <laughs> what my was cell the phone right then on my car. I picked up my cell phone, called the M and A guy, and said, "Offer him a million more." He said, "They'll never take so, it." I said, "Yes, they will." What? Okay, so what? What were they offering to begin with? Ballpark. Um, I know we can't maybe talk exactly. Yeah, around, but what was their original? Four million. Yeah, around four million. Got it. And so, what are you? How are you valuing the company in your own mind? It sounds like when you came across the horizon and you looked at that panoramic view, you thought it was closer to five or you wanted another million. Why? What, what, is, the, what is the basis on which you are basing the value of this company? Because I knew Pricewaterhouse. And that's another thing that's very important. Know who's buying you. Know why they're buying you. And the things that were, um, were the intangibles. I was giving them a cohesive tech group of which no tech person wants to go work for Pricewaterhouse. So I was giving them a pool of technical people that were very strong. Um, I was giving them IT software, the only PC-based system in the country, um, fully developed with a, a client base. Um, and this, would, this PC allows them to, to go into the market that they were not in, like the upreads. Um, and the private and public partnerships that their tax department is struggling getting their K-1s out for. Um, this is a system that's already developed that they can use. And um, our process and procedures. So clearly you had some, some important assets to the company and you knew that PLBC wanted those. Mm -hmm. But again, I want to go back to, they offer for, in your mind, you think it's worth more you say a million more, you know, why not a hundred thousand more? Why not 10 million more? Like you must have had some inkling of what the business was worth. Uh, was there some yes, I do valuation? Because, yeah, go ahead. Um, if you look at the structure of the public accounting firms, because they were getting this system, it allowed them to compete effectively with Ernst & Young, with um, all the other accounting firms because they didn't have a system. So Price and Cooper's merged. They were those two systems and us. They buy us. They're the only system in the country. 
So you weren't using some valuation formula that someone mm-hmm. gave you like one times revenue or something. Mm-hmm. You were trying to say what it's worth to PwC. Going forward, what did I, what did this system give PwC in the, in their competitive market face, uh, marketplace? Uh, got it. Okay. So get back to the story. So you call your M and A professional before we before we um, go further. You referenced calling your brother in law, getting a recommendation from an M and A professional, and, and then you said that was a mistake. But you never clearly said why it was a mistake. Maybe you could just tell us why it was a mistake. Like what what was it that the M and A professional did that led you to believe that it was a mistake hiring them? He undervalued the company because he didn't know the industry. He was ready to accept our initial offer. Um, because he didn't understand what this would allow Pricewaterhouse to gain in the marketplace. And um, so I think you have to sit back when, a, when something like this happens and look at uh, maybe go on websites of other M&As and look and see what kind of deals they've done so they have a good feel because he was a representative of our company not of Pricewaterhouse. Sure, he was representing you in the deal, but didn't have a lot of industry knowledge mm-hmm. necessarily. No. So, so you go, you, you, you drive over the rise and you say a million more. Uh, did, you, did you have another bidder at the table? And like, did you, did you go to Ernst & Young? Was, was there any conversation about bringing a competitive bid to the table? No, I didn't. And the reason is, is uh, it's difficult to get into this business, even if you're um, a big four, a big five. It, it's not that easy to get into. Uh, and I, I didn't. Uh, and maybe I could have, but we also are very seasonal and we're bumping up against um, the K-1 season. So that's why it was closed in a month because our first, uh, the tape start, the, the data starts coming in on the, on the first and second quarter of, of trades because we get uh, buy and sell information from 350 broker dealers. I see. So in a way, you had a, a natural sense of urgency that if the season right. picked up again, it would be difficult to get the deal done. And PwC, just to be clear, PwC was already in the business of processing these K-1s, whereas if I'm correct, in this, Ernst & Young was not really no. in that business. None of them. So it would have required them to get into a new business. Got it. Exactly. And, and, and did you feel... I mean, one might interpret that information as saying, well, that actually undermined your leverage and 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 maybe you had less negotiating leverage because PwC, in a, in a lot of ways, was really the only game in town. And to your own point, might have even started giving away the K-1 processing. How did you- They did you know, give it away. Must, how did you muster the courage to ask for another million when you knew that maybe there wasn't really another bidder at the table? Well, I guess I live in the wild west of Denver and we just ask. I just did. I, 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 I just knew. Um, they had tried to develop a PC-based system for three years prior to calling us and they couldn't get it done. And I knew that. So I How knew did you they know would, that, Ann? Um, that's Denver. That's why we met at the airport. I just knew they were, you know, talking to customers. Um, why did you pick us rather than PwC? Because you were PC-based. 
Well, doesn't PC, uh, doesn't Pricewaterhouse have a, no, they can't get it developed in. Oh, okay. Interesting. So what was their reaction when your M&A professional asked for a million more? They came back in 24 hours and accepted it. I don't know what their initial reaction was because he never told me, but um, they accepted it. How did you, how did you feel? Great. Great. Now we'll go into the next components of the deal. <laughs> yeah. Which were? Once that was accepted, um, 100% of my employees, all 30 employees were hired. They immediately invested in 401k. They gave 10% signing bonuses and they get equal raise in salary. And we will not move from our offices for one year because I incubated them. What do you mean you incubated them? The tech staff. The PwC year. tech staff. No, my, well, my tech staff were 100% hired by PwC. I see. So you see the you culture. We have a culture. Them situation and PwC was housed in a high rise um, and we were in downtown, lower downtown. My dog Amber came to work um, <laughs> and it was a very uh, intuitive, flexible, uh, we would solve problems over lunch, um, come to the conference room, we have a tech issue and we would, you know, resolve it with the tax people and the tech people together collaboratively. That type of environment is, is somewhat difficult in the big four. It requires five and six meetings and approvals, and we could just get it done. And what was your requirement as part of this deal? I understand your employees were treated fairly. What, what did you have to sign up for? Was there an earnout component or some, some portion of your proceeds that were at risk? No, um, I didn't have an earn out. I got a commission um, on for three years on the sales, but it wasn't necessarily an earn out because I had four other investors. So we, you know, I had, I had brought in four investors for a very small piece very early on. And so uh, paid those off. But I, I had a three year director of tax at price uh, with a commission and then, um, but I had to sign a four-year non-compete. Got it. And so as a, a, for your three years with Pricewaterhouse, just to be clear, you had um, a commission. Were you also a salaried employee yes. with sort of a commission bonus? That no, structure? yeah, I was a, it was a commission just based on the, um, the clients of AIS. And then I had a, a, just a straight salary comparable to what a director makes at Price. Right. Okay. And I'm just trying to get a frame of reference for your commission, just to give the audience a sense of, uh, was that sort of a cherry on top of the cupcake or was it a major part of your compensation? Did like as no. a percentage of the overall price, would it have been, you know, that commission cherry. over three years? Okay. Just, just a, a just cherry a, on the top. Probably, okay. So really uh, you got most of your, you got most of your cash up front then at, at closing. All of it. All of it. There was no earn out. Now, part of the part of the difference is uh, because we were trading partnerships, and that was a niche that uh, Pricewaterhouse knew and knew very well. So, as far as um, stickiness to the clients, there was going to be no question, unless they changed their form of doing business to a C corp. 
they were going to be processed with Price Waterhouse, period. Given the speed with which PwC came back and agreed to your extra million, was was there any sense that that maybe there was more that they would have done? There's maybe even more money that you could have gotten? Had you asked for $2 million, do you think you could have gotten more? Did you ever ask yourself that uh, in retrospect? I did, slightly in the back of my mind, but you have to look at the whole picture as far as the whole package. And the trade-off might have been to affect the integrity of AIS um, in, in the employee benefit package, customers, you know, when you start, you sort of trading pennies and you, you had to look at the whole package, our ability to stay in our offices for a year, um, uh, my director position at for three years at Pricewaterhouse, um, so I did not. My investors made out, we gave, got a return of 1,000%. So wow. they were happily compensated. Um, yeah, they were very happy. I'd imagine, yeah. Maybe take us inside the offices of AIA, AIS when you told your employees that you were selling to PwC. Maybe, can you describe that situation to us and how you handled it? It was awful because Pricewaterhouse was a very uh, formidable competitor of ours. So I explained to them why I did it. Um, And I did it because I was um, very, very tired. You don't push out 3 million K1s every year and I explained to them how I felt the price of the merger between Cooper's and Price would affect AIS negatively. And I told them that I felt that this Price Waterhouse on their resume um, would be significant. And they should take advantage of that and all the continuing education that was, you know, available at Price Waterhouse. I could not duplicate it. And the very next day, within, within, well, they, Price was there. They were waiting in the wings. And we went out and did a social event with Price Waterhouse and AIS so they could get to know each other. The very next day at 8, they did the interviews with the, they had the employment packages ready, all ready to go. And they came to the table with exactly what they promised which is exactly what I discussed with them vaguely, not specifically, but in generalities. How did your people react when you first told them? Um, they were a- a- angry. When we, we had a big meeting in the conference room and they were, um, they were angry. And I said, just wait and hear me out. Now answer all your questions. Um, honestly, to the best of my ability, why? But um, hear me out. And How then did they, you know they were angry? I could see it in their faces. These are people I've seen every day. I could, I knew they were, they were, they weren't angry. They were surprised. I anger probably is not. They were, they were very surprised. And the first question was why? And confused, confused. Why? And so you had an answer to that. Yeah, I did. I went down step by step because I had thought about this a lot. 
I had thought about it a whole lot in those two or three months. I had agonized over it. Hmm? Why did you agonize over it? Um, Because I knew it would be a significant event, both in the MLT industry and also with my employees. Because they've been used to, you know, lower downtown, um, Amber coming to work. You know, we got things done. We got things done rapidly, effectively. With a big, with Pricewaterhouse, you know, you have to have five or 10 meetings. And um, they felt a little bit, the tech staff felt that their ability to develop within the tech world would be uh, inhibited a little bit with price because they were old school technology. And with AIS, we were um, fast track. But I, I assured them that we were moving the PCR system over there and they would be working on the same system they were working on at AIS. How did their attitudes evolve? When I say they, I mean your employees, your legacy, these 30 people that you had going into the deal. How did their experience in this buyout uh, evolve over the next few weeks? You said that they were quite surprised, maybe even a little angry at the beginning. How did that, how did that evolve over time? Best decision I ever made was not to move the office. If I had moved, if I had allowed the office to close down and move down to a high rise building, it would have not been favorable. Um, I'm not sure how many of them would have stayed regardless of the monetary package they got. But the fact we stayed in my location for in the lower downtown location for a year allowed things to change gradually. Because Price Waterhouse employees had to come to my office. We never met in their office. All meetings, tech meetings, um, sales meetings, and so on were held at my office, at, at our office, AIS's office. That makes a big difference. I wonder why it's such a big deal. Um, they were comfortable. So they, they, the only change they had to make was we had to integrate gradually the tech process and procedures so that we complied with prices as far as new enhancements to the system, um, testing, so on and so forth. But the rest of the environment stayed pretty much the same. The call center, the investor relations, that stayed the same. So how did things evolve over years two and three after the one-year commitment was passed the second year was a little, um, it wasn't as difficult because we had assimilated within Pricewaterhouse, but we did move down to the high rise. Um, of course, they had nicer offices um, and we had a much bigger uh, staff uh, space for the um, investor relations, you know, with all the latest technology and phone service and so on and so forth. So for that group, it was, well, I got a bigger office and I got, you know, nicer phones and so on. So that worked out pretty well. There was no change there. Um, a couple of the tech staff uh, had the offer to move to Dallas where their tech group was and they accepted the offer and they were pleased. So, How did you, how did you personally handle working for PwC? I mean, you, you strike me as a very entrepreneurial woman. Um, quick decision-making, get things done, 
up by the bootstraps. I mean, how did, how did you survive those three years? It was tough. And I think any owner that sells a business needs to come to grips with that and figure out how he's going to um, separate himself from the business. What was tough about it for you? Um, I was basically not invited to any sales meetings or, or uh, asked for my opinion basically on anything. Um, except and how'd that, for, make you, how'd that make you feel? Um, not good, but I knew the environment. You know, I wasn't new to the big four. I had worked for Deloitte and I had worked for Coopers and I had competed against price. So I knew the culture. Um, I was, um, found other things to do, (laughs) you know, um, divorce myself from the personal involvement, strictly business, but you have to do that. I had to prepare myself before. I didn't know it would be as significant as it was, but I knew there would be something. The D word divorce is a pretty heavy word. <laughs> did did you did, did you really divorce yourself? I mean, when you say divorce yourself, maybe maybe elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, I was not involved in the sales process at all. I offered. I uh, it, it's it's your feelings. It's your feelings. You just take every day as it comes. Um, you give what value you can, but you don't expect any um, true involvement in the company after it's sold. You will be given certain tasks or jobs or tokens, you know, for the three years, but you will not be making a difference in your company going forward once it's sold. How do you feel about that? I mean, there's a lot of time that's passed, right? So uh, we're recording this in 2019. This is believe it or not, coming up on 20 years ago. How do you, how do you reflect back on that time now, having the passage of time provide um, perspective? I don't, because I use, I use what I learned, what I've learned to help other companies. Um, so, you're, so you don't look back on that and realize... Well, there, there was one thing that I did do. Um, in 2010, um, KPMG... Remember, there's only one system in the country, and that's Pricewaterhouse. 2010, um, Deloitte, Touche, and KPMG decided they were going to write competing systems. And my, my non-compete was over for six years, and I was invited to consult for three years with KPMG in developing their competing system, which I did. And how, did you, how do you feel about that decision? Given Great. <laughs> yeah. Because now there's so you- three of them. Right. So you don't feel any specific loyalty to PwC, uh, given that you honored your, your, your non-compete, you did your job and you're sort of a free citizen to go about your business. That's right. That's right. And they invited me and I said, fine. Yep. I'll be happy to help you consult to build a competing system. Because, you know, competition is the way we do things here in the States. Competition is good. Yeah, for sure. As you look back on the entire experience, growing AIS, selling it, and even those three years as a director for PwC, is there anything that you might, or if you had to do over again, let me ask it this way. If you had it to do over again, what one thing might you do 
just a little bit differently if you had it to do all over again? Mm. I probably would carve out what my responsibilities were going to be for the three years and have those in writing so there's a commitment on their part of what was expected of me for three years. So I wasn't floundering so much because that was never really defined. So when I made an attempt to um, get involved in sales, you know, there was pushback on their part. I should have had that further defined. And that would be true for anybody that's selling that's going to uh, be an employee of the acquirer. Get that job description, your KPIs, your incentives yeah, really exactly. locked down. Got it. Locked Got down. It. Yeah. And what a phenomenal story. I'm really glad that you told this to us. We, we, um, we spent a lot of time talking about the pre-sale, but today we spent quite a bit of time talking about post-sale, which I, which I really enjoyed. I'm grateful for you spending the time to do that. And what's the best way for people to reach out? Is there a website or do, do you accept LinkedIn connections? If people wanted to reach out and say hi, what's the best way to do that? Oh, LinkedIn connection. Um, and Anne C. Bennett on LinkedIn. And I have a website, kbaassociates.com. Awesome. KBAassociates.com and Ann C. Bennett. And Bennett is B-E-N-N-E-T-T, I think, correct? Right, right. On LinkedIn. Awesome. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.